The following conversation originally aired on The Point on KPOV 88.9 FM, Community Radio of the High Desert. Coming up on the show today, our guest will be Elizabeth Johnson, the Executive Director of Peaceful Presence Project. They provide non-medical, thoughtful support to individuals and families facing serious and terminal illness. Elizabeth and her team are end-of-life doulas, and we're going to have an open and honest discussion with her to find out what they do and how they can support you or a loved one during the end-of-life process. Their work is founded on compassionate community model of care. This approach to palliative care believes that we all have a part to play in supporting our neighbors, family, friends in the last stage of their life. We've asked her to come on and share her knowledge and insights on the dying process and how to support someone through this process, which is very fitting today uh, that she would be our guest. Um, Welcome to The Point. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Elizabeth, tell everybody what is Peaceful Presence Project and what is an end-of-life doula? So the Peaceful Presence Project, uh, we are a community-based organization um, here in Central Oregon. We founded in 2019 as a nonprofit. As you opened up saying, our work is really inspired by, informed by something um, known as the Compassionate Communities Model of Care. Um, the, the bulk of our work falls in three main categories. So we do a lot of community and clinician education bringing in more kind of practical wisdom or skill sets around what we oftentimes refer to as, as death and grief literacy. Uh, we do a lot of planning and preparedness work around um, the dying process. And then finally, what we f- refer to as compassionate presence, so showing up for individuals or families during that dying window. We as a team are all trained as end-of-life doulas, and so that role is really a, a non-medical in nature. Um, and is uh, oriented towards you know being a, a companion and a, a source of support when it comes to uh, psychosocial, emotional, practical questions and considerations around you know how we navigate experiences of of grief and death um, as families and as as communities. And how does this differ from hospice? Great question. So we work uh, collaboratively with with hospice. Um, a lot of the clients that we engage with are, you know, currently on hospice. And so um, the, the difference with the work that we do in, in some ways is really on based on the time, right? We've got a lot more time in the week to spend with with an individual, and that can, you know, look like a lot of different um, a lot of different things. Um, uh, the other the other big difference is that we tend to engage with families or individuals upstream of hospice. Um, so we'll have people reach out and ask for support, you know, as somebody, you know, receives a new diagnosis. And the benefit is we step in earlier and then are able to kind of navigate a longer term relationship with individuals, hopefully eventually getting them onto hospice in, in a way where they're able to receive the benefit of, of hospice services, you know, a lot, a lot sooner. What I love is that you cater your business to the individuals in need. And I noticed something specific about the Peaceful Presence Project is that you offer a workbook to help guide people through the grieving process. Can you talk more about how you design that and how that helps people process their emotions? Sure. So the workbook you're referring to is um, called End Notes. And we designed the workbook in 2020. We um, did a pretty thorough 
market research of end-of-life planning tools or guidebooks that were available to people. And we felt, we felt like for the most part, a lot of the, the, the tools on, you know, available online or in bookstores tended to be really um, overwhelming in a lot of ways, a really you know, 75-page document that somebody had to work through. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about the endings of things. And so to, to actually sit down and think about what it might look like to move through that process can be really daunting. And so we designed EndNotes um, with four uh, main sections of consideration or planning for people. So there's a piece for my mind, peace of mind section, logistical things that people may want to think about, um, piece for my body, what sort of, what would you want your dying process to look like? And then afterwards, what, um, you know, kind of, uh, body disposition, um, preferences might you have? And what, what that really hopefully encourages as well is people to look into what are my rights? What are my options around the dying process? What would feel good to me as a person? You know, how is that reflected in, in the quality of life and, and the values that I hold as an individual? Um, there's a piece for uh, my heart. So, you know, what are the relational aspects that really need to be tended to? And then peace for those that are, you know, peace for survivors, those that after I'm gone, what do I want people to know? And so the book is designed to support people around that end of life planning process, but we always want encourage people to try to engage with it ahead of, um, you know, a serious or terminal illness, knowing that none of us really know when we will die, right? That there's a lot of unexpected or unanticipated death. And so this is an invitation to really sit down and get current in your life about who you are, um, what you value and what you would want to communicate to your family in the case that, um, you know, you died tomorrow. What, What would you need to tend to? gives you the tools to be prepared to process the grief mm-hmm. in the best way possible because it is such a hard thing to go through. Do you have a personal story of someone or an experience that touched you while doing this work? Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I sat with a woman who had done a lot of the logistical life planning. She knew that she was she had a, a, a prognosis of six months or less. And so she had sat down and made sure all of her accounts were in order. You know, she had named her durable power of attorney for health care. Um, all of all of the sort of checkbox things that, you know, needed to be done. And she felt complete. And when I came in and engaged and we started talking about, um, you know, different elements of who she was as a person, the fullness of her life, she realized that there was so much more to be said um, to her loved ones, you know, to her brother who lived out of state, to her best friends that um, had accepted that she was dying, but didn't know how to engage or to support around her dying process. And so she sat down and wrote letters to all of the most meaningful um, humans in her life and was able to send those out and have them be read ahead of, of when she died. And I think for her, you know, the, the courage and the willingness to go through that process meant that there was sort of a pulling um, towards her and surrounding her with all these individuals that, you know, loved her deeply, but just didn't know how to be there with her. And so her ability to communicate her love, her places of forgiveness, of connection, of awe of who these people were, really, I think, gifted her a really beautiful dying process. It felt complete in a different way. When I tell people, oh, we, we've prepared our will, we've prepared our... There's a lot of people who just don't even want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Once you face 
death, you can face life. Um, your life can have more meaning. Do you find that that is something that you come up against as family members and uh, people who don't even want to talk about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, as we all know, we, we live in a deeply death-denying culture. And there's also interesting research to support sort of the why around that. There's research that came out in 2019 that showed that the brain actually categorizes death as something that only happens to others. And they don't know exactly why, but they think it probably has to do with that self-preservation piece, right, of how we keep going in life. And so there is this real biological reality that we're up against um, in, in terms of sort of being clear-eyed around our own impermanence, our own dying process. But having said that, you know, I think when people are given the opportunity to have these conversations, to do this pondering, people take it. There is a lot of hunger for, you know, candid uh, conversations and explorations around mortality, around, you know, what it, what it means to be born, to live, and to die. And as you said, I think there's a really deep richness that comes with the willingness to feel into, right? What, it, what do the endings mean? And then work backwards from that and be in your life now. So I, I've found that, that once you create spaces for people to, to do this work, they, they take it. Part of the compassionate community's model of care is really saying, how do we, how do we navigate, cultivate, create those spaces so people can do this exploration with one another and their, and their loved ones? So what have you personally learned about life and death from being an end-of-life doula? I have learned that there is a, a deep fragility to to life. And the sooner that people are are able to really feel that fragility in their bones, in their relationships, um, in the way that we wake up and get out of bed every morning, we, we're allowed to be in life differently. And, um, you know, a lot of people say, wow, it's such a morbid thing or what a dark thing to be around death so frequently. You know, to not sugarcoat it, it is difficult. And dying can be a really hard, difficult process for people. And I also think, you know, sort of residing in this territory in a more frequent way as an end-of-life doula gifts me with, with a perspective and, a, and an understanding that this is all fleeting. It is temporary and to to really hold on to and do the work um, to, to stay current in your relationships and, and, and in your life. Mm, that's beautiful. Uh, two questions that kind of fit into each other. One of them was about this reef ritual that I saw on your website um, that's continued support after death, some type of a ritual that you may help the loved ones with. And the other is, what is the best way to support a loved one of someone who's dying? Um, you know, that that is often something that we as people don't know what to do, what to say. What's the best way to support them? Mm. Well, I will say the the role of an end-of-life doula ideally begins upstream, continues on during the dying process, and then we are available afterwards as people navigate that, that grief window, right? And the grief extends... Ahead, you know, once the, term, the diagnosis is made, all the way through the end, and so we just want to be there to provide uh, space 
tools, um, options for people as they navigate the the bereavement process. We're really grief illiterate culture in a lot of ways, and people can feel painfully alone when it comes to uh, really being present to the to the grief experience. So, you know, we get that question a lot, Jackie. It's something that we train to um, as and in, in when we do our community workshops um, around how do we be with someone um, as they're navigating a grief experience. And I would say the the thing where we get in our own way is we have this this sense of well I just need to know how to say the right thing or I know I need to have some sort of you know answer that's going to make all of this feel a little bit different or make the person feel better and there really is a myth around that which you know we've all kind of um, been we've we've all sort of been we've bought into is the idea that somehow I need to walk in the room and make it make it be different the reality is. The, the most supportive thing that we can do is be with another. I heard a beautiful story the other day on a podcast where a gentleman said his, his daughter died and he returned home from the hospital and one of his dear friends was sitting on his front porch with a meal. And he said, I don't need anything from you. I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I just want you to know I am here and I will continue to be here in whatever way that looks like, you know, whatever is most supportive for you. Um, and so that's part of this grief literacy work that we're doing is, is kind of re, reconnecting people with this practical wisdom around how do we be with one another in these spaces of, of, of great need. I mean, there's no, there's no big mystery around it, right? There's a core to, to our humanness that we do know how to do that for one another. It's just remembering what that looks like. Yeah, that's a good point. The sense of powerlessness that we feel when um, dealing with somebody who's grieving. So that's 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 good help. Just create the safe space mm-hmm. to grieve. On the other hand, what is the best way you can support someone who is dying? Great question as well. With the compassionate community's model of care, you know, something that they're, the research around that that movement talks about is uh, the fact that when somebody has a terminal diagnosis. Only around 5% of their time is spent face-to-face with a medical provider. So 95% of that person's time is spent outside of the healthcare system, right? With family, with friends, or potentially with no one. There's a lot of people who are highly isolated um, and, and in a lot of ways disenfranchised when it comes to their dying process. Um, so I, I think the first thing is just knowing that a lot of people are navigating this 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 dying process or the terminal terminal illness in a really isolated way and so to have the courage to say whoever that is right a beloved a neighbor a friend i i want to be here with you what it, what it looks like is not putting the expectation on yourself that you're going to again have the magical answer to know how to change their experience um but really to say i i want to be a supportive a source of being with that will um, allow you to feel less alone in this process. And that's part of what we train to in our um, community and our end-of-life doula trainings, a lot of more specificity around what that might look like. Yeah, and that's what I just wanted to get to quickly. I know we're, we're coming to the end, but um, how do, do you actually have a training certification for people who want to uh, do this? We do. We have a training program as an organization. We have self-paced end-of-life doula uh, trainings that are all on our website, and it's, a, it's an eight-module training that people can go through. And then in September, we'll have our next facilitated um, end-of-life doula training, and that's, a, again, an eight-week process around a 75-hour training. 
Oh, wow. Thank you. So uh, in the last minute, just tell people how they can get a hold of you and get more information and that workbook that JC had mentioned. Yes. Yeah, so all of the details re- regarding EndNotes, the planning end of life planning workbook, um, our trainings, and just how to connect with us if you want more information about our services. All of that's located on our website, which is the peacefulpresenceproject.org. And we welcome people to reach out. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Johnson, for joining us on this very important topic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert. For more information or the KPOV program schedule, go to kpov.org. We welcome feedback. Drop us a line, podcast at kpov.org.